Hello, and welcome to Steady State Podcast. We are really interested in backstories, the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. By sharing stories about the humanity of our sport, we're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates real life experience from launch to cock seat at every level. We're Rachel Friedman and Tara Morgan, and this is Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode, a conversation with Kathy Frederick, founder of Row for the Cure. Like many women who grew up before Title IX, Kathy spent her young life studying ballet. When she learned to row at 42, it reminded her so much of dancing that she was immediately hooked. Just a few years later in 1993, the loss of a dear friend to cancer prompted Kathy to host a fundraising event on the Willamette River. From those modest beginnings, Row for the Cure was born. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or ask your smart speaker to play Steady State Podcast. This episode is made possible in part by Concept2, Lake Washington Rowing Club, and our newest sponsor, Breakwater Realty in Portland, Maine. Become a sponsor for as little as $65 at steadystatenetwork.com slash sponsors. Breakwater Realty Group, located in Portland, Maine, is defined by integrity, service, and expertise. Breakwater challenges you to create a vision for your life and love where you live. Call the team at 207-712-4041 or visit breakwaterrealtygroup.com. Breakwater Realty Group, the evolution of your real estate experience starts here. Today, we're talking with New Zealand Olympic gold medalist, Eric Murray, known for dominating in the men's coxless pair with partner Hamish Bond. We know you might be saying, an Olympian? I thought you guys were all about celebrating the everyday rower. We are, and we always will be. But we have to admit that when Eric reached out and asked to be on the podcast, we had a total fan moment. There was no doubt we'd invite him for a chat. From humble beginnings as an awkward teenage athlete, Eric quickly discovered that being six foot five translated into impressive erg splits. Coaches noticed too, and he soon found himself on the podium at U16 and U17 events. From there, it was a one-way ticket to the national team, World Rowing Championships, and the Olympics. Between 2007 and 2015, a commitment to be the very best brought Eric four indoor rowing world records, eight world rowing championships, and two Olympic gold medals. Retired from flat water rowing since 2017, Eric Murray is keeping himself very busy working with Concept2, the Etsense rowing app, and as a member of the World Rowing Indoor Rowing Commission. And if that wasn't enough, he recently took a turn as a contestant on Dancing with the Stars New Zealand. Hi, Eric Murray. Hi, team. How are we? Well, oh. we should say good morning to you. How's your morning going? Uh, good. I actually just got off the, the bike, so I'm a little bit flushed. Just- yeah, but I'll, I'll calm down slightly. Aircon's on. We actually do something every episode to help our listeners get to know you. We call this rapid fire. Go. Are you ready? Let's go. Rapid fire. Okay. Port or starboard? Starboard. Bow seat or stroke seat? Bow. Intervals or steady state workout? No intervals. Unisuit or tank and trow? Yeah, suit. Barefoot or shoes on the erg? 
barefoot all day. Calories, watts, or splits on the monitor? Split with full scoop. Best post-workout meal or snack? Oh, it's got to be a banana peanut butter sandwich. Name a rower you'd like to row with but have never had the chance to. Uh, Andy Triggs Hodge. Why? Oh, just because we had such a great rivalry. And he is a specimen like Hamish. And I'd love to row with him just to feel like what he was doing because they were very, very good. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just to, just to literally see. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, best place to row? Oh, Lucerne. Oh, do you know, racing, racing Lucerne, um, training-wise, I'm not going to lie, Carapiro, number one place in the world to train. Lucerne is the top answer. <laughs> just let you know. From anyone who's been there, it's been the top answer. Yeah, who was telling us about, like, the cows on the hillside and the bells. The cows on the hillside, yeah. yeah ding, 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 ding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, most important question everyone's dying to know, coffee before or after a row? Oh, before, 100%. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> before <writing>. and after. <laughs> okay, so we want to find out how this all got started. So what was happening for you when you found rowing and when did you learn to row? I rowed at school. Um, New Zealand's very dominated by school rowing so our main programs are developed in school which is sort of under 15 through to under 18 um, and then we have a very big drop off we've got a bit of a university program but not a big one um, and so I was just at school and then you basically get guided to say hey you could be quite good at this and so that was basically the pathway that led me through so I, I, I was mainly rowing in summer um, because I would play rugby uh, between in the winter period. I, I went down to Christchurch, which is in the South Island. They had the best sort of club program uh, and then made my way into sort of the top team, the premier sort of elite team of there when I was, when I was 18 um, and then won the national title in the eight and then basically just put you on a pathway to, to be like, right, let's go. And we were the first group in 2001 crikey it's that while ago um that was sort of part of a centralized program for new zealand rowing and we went to canadian henley and uh the canada cup that year um and then next year under 23s which used to still be called the nation's cup back then um and then into world champs uh, olympics 2004 and then just went like this for a while and then it went that way <laughs> so that, that first year you're you're playing you're playing rugby you start rowing and do you remember like those first you know a handful of practices we you getting terrible. on the water yeah where, where we were i was probably about 40 50 k's out of auckland um and there's a place called mercer it's the waikato river it runs right through the center of the north island to uh the coast and it floods quite often and so there's all these paddocks at the back and so people used to learn how to row in these flooded paddocks because the water's only sort of bit bit higher than knee deep um and so the coach would take you out into singles and you'd fall out but you could just get straight back in yeah and then you get on the river and learn how to do it and you'd row upstream so of course if anything went wrong you could just float back down uh and yeah the first the first year was terrible we trained like once a week and then went and raced and so we sort of killed our novice year we never really got an opportunity to have like a great novice year um and then the following year got a little bit better and then the next year after that 
coaches basically like, if you want to be a bit better, here's the program. It's four or five days a week. And then we were like, yeah, cool. And, um, and we ended up winning one of the age group uh, quad under 17 Cox quad at uh, the sort of secondary school championship. You just start to realize, yeah, it's, it's fun and enjoyable and social. And, and yeah, one thing leads to another. It sounds like they gave you a taste and didn't just throw you into a competitive program right away. Is that pretty typical of their development programs where they just like, they want you to have fun and, and be a kid and, and, and be enjoying the sport and then sort of spoon feed you competition and things along the way? It was for us, but I think it's changed a lot. And so much, so much going on in terms of are we pushing kids too hard? You know, are we putting too much pressure on? And and my belief system is that when you when you get a group in, especially at that younger age group, you've just got to give them a taste and get them going first. Once they've done that, if they come back again, you need to sit down with your athletes and you need to say, hey, guys, we've got three places that you're going to go and stand in the room, right? Who wants to win? You, this is your only sport. You've got all the time. We're going to, you know, it's going to be a lot of work. You go over there. The people that are in the middle, I still want to go fast. I still like to maybe win, but I've got a lot of other things going on, study, etc. So I might have to miss some stuff, whatever. You're in the middle. And then you've got another group on the other side. They're like, we are here for a bit of fun. you know. And, and when you separate them, you can start figuring out where your time needs to be put, who needs the pressure. These guys are here for fun. Great. Love it. Make sure they really enjoy it. Don't need to put a huge amount of time into them. The other side, you're going to be putting that little bit of pressure on. They know it. And then you've got to start filtering some of these people in the middle over that side so you can have a good program. But if you're trying to put everyone into one bundle and you've got people that just are like, look, I can't give all the time I need. I've got other things going on in life. Um, that's where you start losing all of them and they're just out. Um, you have to try and find that balance between the reason that you're there. And I, and I really feel like there's three reasons, those three reasons why most people are doing rowing. Um, and you've just got to decide which one you slot into. And then whichever one you slot into dictates how much work, how much pressure, um, you know, your expectation at the same time. But that's okay. basically the way you've got to, that's the way you've got to approach it. I think if you do that, you'll get less drop off. Um, you know, you'll have better programs, a lot more like happiness in the, in the program, better culture, um, because everybody really does know their place. Do you remember, Eric, when you first were out on the water and even if it was not going so well in the paddock, um, what got you? Like what made this something that you would want to do five days a week? I, I have no idea. I literally was doing it to get time off school. I'm not kidding. You know, you could leave a period early and go down to training and yeah. there was weekends that you wouldn't have to go to school on a Friday because you were traveling down to go like your regatta and, and then there'd be a week off for this competition and th four days off at this competition. Um, and so that was really my motivation was just to not be at school. Um, but then of course, once you start getting those results and I was like, oh, this is not bad. And then it wasn't really until I had left school that I got obsessed. I, I guess that's pretty much the word you, you start you know, living and breathing and figuring out what the next step is and what this next six months is going to hold and where do I need to be living here? Like, you know, can I move out of home, go and study or work somewhere else? And then that was really the decision-making as I, I, you know, uh, was just doing your due diligence on where's the best place for me to go. Um, and I could have stayed where I was and maybe moved into Auckland because, you know, Auckland Rowing Club was strong at the time or be actually where I am now at the Waikato Rowing Club, um, or I could have gone down to Christchurch to the Avon Rowing Club. At the time, Avon was number one. They had the guys that were finishing up. Two of them had come back from the Sydney Olympics. So you had some really good people there. 
So you're like, you've got to go where the, the best people are. And I was like, right, get on the plane, find a flat, go down, work. Um, I started studying and, and then, yeah, one thing leads to another. And all of a sudden you're sort of getting asked to come into um, like an academy at Carapero. And then as soon as that happened, it was like, right, here we go. Let's give this some time and see where we can go. And, you know, it's uh, then it was basically just, two and a half years of focused on trying to make the Olympic team. And, and that was it. I'm trying to imagine, like, we know you as a six foot five. Mm-hmm. Did you hit that six foot five while you're still in high school? Or- I was, I was building into it in terms of yeah. like muscle development and everything, yeah. you know, like I was, she's, if I showed you some pictures of me as a, as sort of an 18 year old, it's like, okay, still got a bit of like a bit of just maturity and stuff in the body to do. Um, and yeah, there was a lot of guys in our, we went to Zagreb 2000 junior world champs, uh, junior and senior world champs. And of course I'm just looking at these guys going, holy shit, they're like ripped and they're like, wow, you know, wow, what athletes. And then I'm looking at myself going, mm, yeah, not really. It was just because I wasn't doing anything physically in terms of weight training or anything. It just wasn't even part of our training routine as as like growing up we just didn't do weights you know it was just like we're, we're either running we're doing home exercises you know you do all the like running on the spot and you know burpees and all that that was all we were doing we weren't in the gym doing any weight training so as soon as that started to happen then boom then the muscles started coming then the speed started coming the strength was there you know more explosive power um i i was big like yeah i i think i was probably nearly the height when i hit 18 um, you know, and I, I remember pulling a 608 at sort of our junior trials as a 17, 18 year old. At the time, it was the fastest by about 10 seconds. So, you know, you've got the power, but then it, uh, power doesn't mean jack unless you can start putting it into technique and the technique wasn't great. And then it's just about focusing on that from that point. So what wasn't great about technique? Do you remember then what was really challenging for you? Um, we had mainly only sculled. So I like trying to sweep was horrible, horrendous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd never been in a pair uh, at all. And so when we turned up and I went down to Christchurch to start training for like the junior trials, they're like, oh, we're going to do a pairs matrix. And I'm like, never been in a pair. And they're like, what do you mean? And of course, at the time, I was probably 105 kilograms, you know, as a 17, 18 year old. And, um, and of course, I'm in the bow of these pairs, basically bowing the boat into the water because they were only built for like 80 kilogram kids. So the pairs racing was terrible. Mm. I think I might've been second to last, you know, out of the matrix. But then of course, when it went into the four, different story. And obviously on the erg, yeah, I, I just can't remember a lot about the technique back then. It was just, yeah, it must've been horrific. Um, one of the best things though coming through as a junior is that I learned how to do both sides um, row both, like obviously bow stroke or port starboard, um, and then skull at the same time. So um, I've I've raced internationally on both sides, just never sculled internationally. That would have been fun. Honestly. I did see you did a singles race against my Drysdale. Also, in our 2013, 14, 15, we did a lot of sculling. Pretty much when you came into the program and you'd, you'd go to World Champs, come back, we'd spend a month or two like singles, um, and just because you just got to get the feel back, you just got to get like learning how to move the boat, like what is actually making the boat go faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, we would always do a lot of training in it, but it wasn't until Hamish wanted to try and beat Mahe at the like at the national champ that he was like, right. And he said to Noel, can we just go in the single for 
um, for the summer. And I was like, ah, because I, I hated training in the single, but I loved racing in the single. And so we spent quite a bit of time in the singles, uh, sort of in our second cycle through to, to Rio. And one of the, it was the North Island champs. And of course, I blasted out, had a lead on Maha, and it was really shit weather. And he passed me about 500, and then he got a length on me, and he sort of just held it. And then I got to 250, and I was like, right, empty the tank. And of course, rating went to about 45. And I passed him, and he was not happy about it. <laughs> and because, of course, it's like you get, yeah, it's like games overpower. Like I've, I've beaten you already. Like why did you have to sprint through me to finish? And I was like, I don't care. I felt like every year I had one race in me, like one race where I could, I could bring it home. And even at the nationals, uh, twenty fourteen, when Bondi won and he beat Mahe, I was leading for seventeen hundred meters, and then I just blew like a mushroom cloud it was terrible and of course so bondi went through me mahe went through me with 15 meters to go because i was rowing and porridge that was that was horrific everybody i think basically hears your name and they immediately think about hamish bond as well when did he come into your life and how did that partnership happen <laughs> hamish was a junior 2003 and four and under 23 in 2005 um, and there was 20, it must have been 20 when he came in in 2006 into the four. And we went to the World Champs in Eton. Um, we picked up a medal at the World Cup in Poznan, but we, we couldn't replicate. Well, we, no, that, that's another funny story. Do you know about the dead heat? Dead heat. Is so that year now? No, 06. 06, we oh. had a dead heat with the Americans. So in the semi-final, race down, we had a really poor start. I was actually stroking the boat on stroke side. Um, and we raced down the course and we did heated for third place in the semi-final. Okay. Now the rules at the time re-raced between the two of you. And so we're sitting there, the American managers over, our managers over, everyone's with visa just going, this is crap, this is bullshit. You can race the seven lane final. Nope, these are the rules. And so we had to go and race against the American boys again and we lost by about a foot in the in the re-race. And then, of course, we were like, this isn't going to help anybody because two days' time, we're going to go have to race. So we went into the B final, got second or whatever in the B final because we were, you know, basically tapped out. And um, and then the boys in the American four got fourth. So we were like, hey, if neither of us had had to re-race that race, where were we? You know, that type of thing. So um, that was that was a really, really interesting one um, that year. But that was the first year Hamish came into the four. Our sort of combination came about because when we were training in the pier here in New Zealand, we were fast. And you know how you just get those, you get a combination, you put the two people out and you're like, that best combination, we know it. And it isn't, you don't have to do a lot about it. So when we were in the four, when Hamish and I rode together and James and Carl rode together, we were miles in front. So we hardly ever got to row together because Chris, uh, Chris Nielsen, who used to coach Mike Tady in, in the team, um, he, he was like, we can't row you guys together because you just give the other guys a hiding. So, but when we were in the other combination, me, James, Carl, Hamish, we were basically same speed. But in 2008, we're leading up to the Beijing Olympics. When we did a race at Carapero in February, it was before the national championships, we gave everybody an absolute hiding. Um, and we beat George Bridgewater and Nathan Twaddle, who ended up getting bronze um, at Beijing by about nine seconds. Um, but at the time, hindsight, hindsight but at the time we're world champions in the four we didn't think it was going too bad 
So it's like, why would you even contemplate switching and ditching the other boys and going into that? Because we had our combination, it was working, we're already set, we don't have to try, we're just working up to the Olympics, etc. That's just one thing you look back on and say, hmm, that could have been fun. Yeah. So when did you decide to just to lock in with you and, and Hamish and that was going to be it? And you ended up doing that for eight, uh, eight, eight years. Eight years. Mm. So basically after after the Beijing Olympics, when we, we missed out on the final and we were just, uh, you know, sucked, I, I needed to take a break because I'd, I'd done two Olympics, you know, and it was great. You obviously got to sign up for four years. You're not just signing up for one more year or one more goal, whatever. You've got to sign up for the whole hog. And I was like, I'm going to take a break. I'll see where I go. But of course, because we had Carapira World Champs coming up, I was like, I do want to be part of that. And so I just basically came back and I was working um, full time and I was training, keeping fit. Um, and then it was sort of December. Hamish came and he said, look, and he had gone back into the program and he was looking for a boat to like go in and they were trying to put him in a quad with a few other guys. And he just didn't feel like they had a good combination. And Hamish basically came around one time and he's like, look, do you, do you think we should have a go at the pier? And I was like, wow, you know, I, I still need my time because I'm just not really there like upstairs to commit because we got no funding. Um, I'm like, what am I going to do? But I still wanted to carry on. And, and at the time, Dick Tonks, um, basically, he came and he, and he had a chat. It's about the only time he ever talked to us. And, um, and he basically said, um, you know, if you guys want to go on the pier, I'll, I'll coach you. And you just like light up thinking, holy shit, Dick's going to coach us. Um, man, you know, the probability of us winning medals now just increases. So we started training once a day together and it was good. And then we did the trials at Carapira and we lit it up. It was like about six eighteen on Carapiro, and we we're like, "Wow, that's fast!" You know, it's about the fastest anyone had gone on Carapiro. So we were thinking, "Crikey, here we go!" And then basically that was it. I was still working part time, um, about twelve hours a week, just enough that would pay my bills. <laughs> and um, but I had to, right? Because I like we had minimal funding that was going to take us overseas. So it was going to it was going to cover our costs while we we're overseas, but not while we were training. And so I just had to do enough to to get by. We were sitting here in Carapiro training and all you'd hear on the in the wires and everything was, oh, Andy and Pete have come out of the Olympic gold medal, British four, into the pier. They're going to be the next Redgrave and Pinson. Oh, you know, and we were like, yeah, okay. And of course, we met them on the very first race, the heat in the Munich World, Champ, uh, Munich World Cup 2009. It's one of the best races I remember because it was like we were, we were together after 500, together at the 1,000. We're about half a length up at 500 to go. And then we just pushed and we left them in dust. And it was like, you beauty. And then, of course, from there, when we won the final, we were about five seconds up after a thousand. I was like, holy moly, this is great. And then it was from that point onwards, it was like, we, we're here. Um, let's, let's see where we can go. And so after that first year winning, um, it was like, okay, we're, we're set, let's go. You know, we're on a trajectory to head towards the Olympics and we finally got funding. We were fully funded by the government and sports foundation and stuff here in New Zealand. Um, and, and that just made life so much easier. And then we just focused on training from there. Do you remember rowing with wooden oars or making blades? Concept2 brings over 45 years of innovation to the sport of rowing. Their newest comp blade is a smaller sized blade that feels lightweight, efficient, and stable. Unlock speed with a comp blade, available in both sweep and skull. 
Find out more at concept2.com slash comp. And for folks out West, Lake Washington Rowing Club is full steam ahead organizing the 43rd Head of the Lake Regatta. Set to take place in Seattle on Sunday, November 6th, 2022. It's the last big head race of the season. LWRC hopes to see you there. For more information, visit headofthelake.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Steady State Network and on Twitter at Steady State Row. Sign up for our e-newsletter and become a patron at SteadyStateNetwork.com. When your coach like shoves you off the dock and you're about to go do the gold medal round at the Olympics, shoves you off the dock, good luck, you know, high five, here you go. What kind of a warm-up uh, routine do you have? 2014 World Cup in Lucerne, um, the final, and Martin Cross and, and Greg Searle are talking about um, our warm-up because what we started to find through our physiologist was that that we were spending almost a third of our row like warming up as, as high-performance athletes, you get super, super fit. We'd sort of go 10 or 12 k's up and back, whatever. And we'd only start feeling warm by the time we got up. So our physiologist was like, right, we need to do more warm-up. Heart rate needs to get up quicker, blah, blah, blah. So we started doing quite heavy bikes and ergs prior to getting on the water in training and in racing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, what was happening in some of our races, we were finding we weren't really getting up to speed. Well, not all comfortable speed until after the 1,000, where we... And that's where we started, like, really making the damage on the crews. So basically in our later years, sort of 2012 through till like, 2016, we used to do probably half an hour or so on the bikes, like, heavy. And I mean, like, intervals in terms of, like, getting their heart rate well above, like, U2, U1. Um, And then what that meant is you could do all your aerobic sort of warm-up. And then as you got on the water, all you needed to do after that was, like, your... um, uh, your primers so you're you're like okay we're going to do a minute at 28 minute at 30 minute 32 and then some like fast pieces and then some starts and of course when you get to most lakes around the world you can't warm up it's terrible you've got people in front of you you can't do a long piece and so we, we started doing a lot of heavy stuff off the water and then putting that on the water so we'd be doing a good hour 15 sort of period between when we first started warming up to when the race was, and it was all cut back in time of when we needed to get on the water. And, and quite often, um, especially Lucerne, because it's terrible to like warm up on, um, we'd only be on the water for like 20 minutes. So while everyone else is spending 40 minutes doing like five or six laps up the thing, we used to get on, start rowing up, bang, straight into a piece, get up to the top, full Reese pieces back, go up again, do some starts halfway round, cut in, go into the box. And of course, the, the next group of people was already getting on the water and people were looking at us going, man, your race is like 20 minutes away. But we'd done all the warm-up we needed to prior before getting on. Um, that's how we found a really, really good way of doing the warm-ups. And yeah, we'd get onto the water already sweating, just ready to go. I, I know I've talked to other people before races and one of our main things is you can't guarantee that you're going to get a good warm-up on the water. So you need to like be doing your, your work on land. Yeah. Oh, but the biggest thing is everybody goes, save my energy, save my energy. And it's like, but how many times have you gone out for a training? And coach will be like, right, we're going to do four 10-minute pieces. And the third one's the best one. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it's like you've finally warmed up. You've finally mm-hmm. got the rhythm. You're finally going. So you've already done like 40, 40 minutes of rowing. And yet everyone's like, oh, I've got to save my energy. But 
when, when you start diving into it in terms of the physiology of, of how fit you actually are, you need that period of time to start warming up. Um, and it's very individualized for, for each person, but we worked on it scientifically and we found what worked for us. Uh, and so we, it wasn't about saving ourselves. It was about getting to the point where we were at our peak for the day, ready to go. And then, and then you've only got a, you've only got that commitment for seven odd minutes or whatever. So when you guys are racing together, is there any communication that happens in between you two? Yeah, most of what we do is, is put in place from training. So it's one word, you know, finish, clean, cat, whatever. But it means a whole sentence, like sharpness, mm-hmm. or when we'd, when we'd call stride, which was sort of about 550, mm-hmm. 600. And it was, it was just about focusing on the length, the commitment to the stroke, and getting a really long, beautiful stroke. So we, as, as one word phrases, and then if Hamish piped up, then it was because he wanted to really move away or whatever. But mm-hmm. most of it was done prior so that we didn't have to have any conversations. It's one word. And of course, but everything meant one thing, you know, like I'd be like finish in front. So it meant a whole, a whole range of let the blade come out of the water smoothly, smooth hands around the finish, don't rush them off the back and then have a nice knee break as we come forward. And that's what it meant. So as soon as you said that, it meant the whole focus of a piece of the stroke, not just get the blade out, you know. Um, And we had dialed that in. And then we had our race plan that was sort of set, that was very fluid. Um, We did have a couple of specific things. For us, we always felt that at 600 metres gone was when everybody, like, starts slowing down, okay, because everybody goes out of the start. You've got to slow down in the second five, and then everybody slows down again in the third five. And our philosophy, and it came from Chris Nielsen, um, was he was like, no more than one second fade. If you have more than one second fade between the second and third 500 metres, you need to be disappointed. So our philosophy was zero fade. And so when we went through the 1,000, instead of going big 10, we're going to do three 10s and we're going to push it, it was no fade. And all I would say on the way through was no fade, clean, sharp, everything. Mm. And, And that's why Hamish and I used to either have no fade or actually be able to go quicker in the third 500 that nobody else was able to do because that was our main focus point. Um, and I took control of all our, our calls, um, all our, our tactics. Um, and then Hamish was just keeping the rhythm and he was, he was the man. If he started, I could feel him lifting the stroke or if he turned and he was like, up, I could, I'd be like, yeah, I'm coming with you. Um, and that would be the way that it worked. The other thing as well is I did all the steering. Um, just because I had basically steered, even when I was in three seat in the four, I'd do all the steering subconsciously. As soon as I got into a boat, I, we were basically straight. There's only one time we ever crossed the lanes in a race, and it was at a Rio with that massive sidewind. You have What's a foot there? steer in that boat? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I've raced so, up here quite a bit and, and, and ended up in lots of different lanes. <laughs> Just one <FYI. laughs> You, you got, you, you've got okay. to have you've got to have you've got to have steering there's no everyone that's like oh you should steer from pressure i'm like you can't there's no there's no way coach would be like oh there's no steering today i'll be like nah you got to you have to there's no way you can steer because it's physics but through the middle of the race we were straight as an arrow because hamish's like physiology through the middle of a race was incomparable to anybody else where he could just hold a speed he used to call himself a diesel engine because he could just go at a set pace and just pump it and that's what made him so good was that there not as outright power he didn't have like huge power to make massive sprints like when we're in the single together if we're doing long races he'd destroy me 
as soon as we got into short like 250s i'm like there's a length power like you're not even gonna you're not gonna even match my power um but that was but you like everybody's the same right there's people that are really really good at sprinting and then some people that just the long distance stuff you're like can't keep up no shot steady state podcast is made possible with listener support Today, we're sending a big thank you to our newest Patreon crew members, Stephanie M. and Lizzie S. If you want to join our lineup, find out about our Patreon support levels and benefits at patreon.com slash steadystatenetwork. Coming up on our next episode, we sit down with British adaptive rower Sophie Brown, who's excited to make her U.S. debut at this year's Head of the Charles. Steady State Podcast celebrates real-life experience from launch to cock seat at every level. Search the archive at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast dash topics or listen on your favorite podcast app. Visit steadystatenetwork.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. In two, we're back with Eric Murray. That's one, two. Speaking of long slogs. All right, you're you're training and training at this super high level for all these years. It's turning into you know really great results on the water, but you're you're training on the erg, and you choose to do some really intense <laughs> erg work, and you've got some world <laughs> records. Hour of power. So Tara yep. loves the hour of power. Hour of power. Talks power. about like she settles in twenty minutes in and, and goes in. Uh, we know that you set a world record on the Erg Half Marathon. Did you set out thinking that you would do that? That was your goal that yeah. day? Yeah, so it started It started coming 2006, 2007, I think it was. As part of the program with, with Tonks, um, we'd train like on the 23rd of December, you know, two days before Christmas, we're still training. Um, and we'd do a session in the morning and then he'd be like, right, we're going to do another session at 11 o'clock and every single time. And it became a, it became a, um, uh, it became a standard. It was a religion that we would do an hour test on the machine at that time. Um, there was a couple of years where we'd get turned up and thank God that it was too rough to be on the water. So he'd be like, right, we're going to do the test now. And you'd be like, you beauty. <laughs> don't have to, don't have to do a training session beforehand. Um, and of course, so, so the first time we did it, you're like, an hour as fast as you can go what does that mean and he's like open rate as fast as you can go and so you sort of you're you start off a little bit slow and then you wind it up you know last 20 minutes and you're like shit i could have gone faster but now you've got a benchmark you're like okay that was a, a 140 or a 141 whatever so then next year you're like okay can i go a bit quicker because you know how to do it and then it got to a point where i was like man i reckon i could go real fast and i'd talk to physiologists and stuff and um, I set the hour record in 2011, and that one there was the problem. Was I trained with a physiologist, and he was like, "Okay, your heart rate." We'd mapped it out. We'd done some training pieces and everything, and he's like, "Okay, your heart rate will slowly start rising." And here's me after 10 minutes, my heart rate's at 190, and I'm like, "Okay, um, holy shit, okay." And then I did the next 10 minutes, and Dan was behind me. He goes, "Keep, keep going," and it didn't move, but I felt. I had clarity, you know, I was, I was, I was rowing, I was thinking, I was focused and then got through the halfway and I'm like, this is good. You know, I'm, I'm holding a 136 split and I'm like, mm, not bad. And, um, and then basically it was about 20 minutes to go. And I was like, 
pushing up to 137. Heart rate's about 196, and I'm like, I can't push it down. I couldn't keep the speed, the split down. Um, and the last 15 minutes was death, and it was. It took me probably three days, four days to recover from. I've never done anything like. Well, obviously after that came the marathon one, uh, half marathon one a few years later, but. I've never felt anything like full fatigue where you, you're basically the next day, you're just like, I can't, I can't walk. Like, and to a point where you're just like, oh, if I had to have done something today, I don't think I could have committed in any way, shape or form. Like the body's probably been like, I'm going to teach you for doing that, pal. And then, and then when we did the half marathon at the time, I think the half marathon record was like an hour and nine and a half or something. And I was like, oh, it's only a 138 split. And so I was like, I can beat that. And, um, because I'd done it for an hour, but obviously I had to go for another seven minutes. So we trained for that one again um, and, yeah, pushed that one out, an hour and seven minutes or whatever the hell it was. I think Conlon McCabe's got both of those now, um, which I mm. knew. I think there's, there was, at the time, I was like, I reckon there's two people in the world that can take my records, um, and he was one of them. And, yeah, he took both of those. I'll tell you what, it was just we we started coming up with things to be – to really push our limits. I, I think one of one of the best tests that I ever did was um, it was 2015 working up to the Olympics and the physiologist was like, I'm going to get you to do four 2Ks, um, three minute break in between. And I did them all under six minutes. And of course he was like, no shot. And I, and so as soon as he said, no shot, you're going to make him under, under six minutes. I was like, here we go. And of course, so it was a challenge. You know, it was just like, you don't think I can do it? I'm going to show you. I'll tell you what, after the third one, I was like, no way, I'm doing it. And then I was like, who cares? A rate went up, sprinted the last like 500. I had to bring it down like low 120s. And I just scraped under like 559.6 or something. That was what we got ourselves to, to be as good as we were. For our everyday listeners, you know, there you might see a kid get into those kinds of splits uh, because they're motivated, they've got a coach yelling over their shoulder, and they do have a bit of mass. But you know, some uh, a regular old master like that's a number we won't see in our lifetimes, probably. Which, but it's so cool to hear about the the humanity behind what makes that yep. possible, and yeah. that you're you're just as inspired by a physiologist sitting there going, you can't do it. Like I, I dare you, you know, you can't do it. And you're like, uh, just watch me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of it though, comes down to, I, I, I feel like we on, on the water and on the rowing machine, we found the perfect biomechanical movement. I think people, people are too much focused on, on their leg drive, but they need to be focusing on their legs, actually driving the body. Um, you know, everybody's like drive mm -hmm. the legs and then swing the body, bang. Because if you, it's like it's like when you're lifting weights off the floor. You know, like you're doing a clean or whatever. You're not pushing your legs first and then opening the body. Everything's opening at once. It's got to be like boom. And when you watch Hamish on the erg, he was sort of 88 kilograms doing every 2k, and you're like, all he did, okay, yes, he had physiology on his side because of the training. But you get the training up and then he had the technique to just be like, oof. And so he's combining legs and body, which are your two biggest muscle groups, right through your back, hanging off the lats, bang, and you're through. Um, and that's really what makes it, you know, no arms. Don't even think about using your arms at the finish. But when you're looking at the force curve and everything, by the time your arms come in, you're on the decline with power. So all you're doing is you're tiring yourself out. And of course, we all know it. You know, it's like when you're in a single and you become a T-Rex because your arms are tight. And you're the same on the erg when your arms are tight and your shoulders are tight and everything's up here. You've lost all your power. 
Um, and so that that was just the things that we found out how to do. And that's what I try and teach people on the erg is like, open it out, sit back through the stroke, you know, don't push and then swing. You've got to sit right back through it and you're just, and you're just using all of the muscle group and you're like, boof, and you're not trying to use the arm. So your arms by the end of it, when you finish it, a workout, you should have no tension in the arm. The arm should be like quite loose and relaxed. It's all the other part of your body that's burnt out. Well, obviously you're passionate about the ERG and, and we know you work for Concept2. And so we wanted to find out from you what's going on with you and Concept2. And uh, Yeah, well, I um, when I left rowing, I was doing a, a few things. And then a guy, Gary Reed, who he's um, he's been Concept2 here in New Zealand forever, he normally goes up to Craftsbury and does a whole lot of stuff. Um, he's been there many times doing coaching and bits and pieces. So he asked me to come on board as sort of business development. So we we import all the concept gear and some other stuff. And we also run the indoor association here in New Zealand. So trying to get people on it, competitions. And, and so I sort of run that side. Um, at the same time, I, I sort of got pulled in to, to help with the Ascense app, you know, doing connected coaching and, and other bits and pieces. So I'm, I'm very much passionate about the space and working with people on it and trying to, to, to give people tips because we're all individual and we all do it in a slightly different way. So what you're sort of, you, you're trying to get a concept through to people. It's very similar to like coaching on the water. I don't know if I'd ever be a great coach on the water, but we all look similar. Well, slightly similar. We're trying to do the same movement, but we're all different heights different weights, you know, sex, everything. And so there's so many other variables that come with it. Um, and so I'm just working in that space to try and uh, like helping people out because it's a great machine, fitness, weight loss, whatever you want to do, testing your own ability. Um, there's, there's really nothing like it, you know, and, and that's why you see it being used in all of their, all the machines through like CrossFit and other stuff. So can I put you on the spot and ask you a technique question? So I've been rowing for 20 years and I have this terrible habit and I've asked many, many coaches about this. I break my arms at the catch and I've asked so many Mm. coaches and I know their responses usually are something like it's a leg sport. And I know it's a leg sport, but I was watching some videos of you rowing on the erg and I was very cognizant of at the catch. I could see your triceps turn on. If you had to describe what's happening with the arms at the catch, how would you teach that to a newer rower? Oh, to a newer one. Okay, a lot of it is what you're trying to do around the front end, okay? Um, Majority of people go into the catch and then they think they've got to come out of the catch. It's got to be a continuous motion around the front. So you've got to be using using the machine to, to pull you into the catch and you feel that deceleration just before you get there. And just as you're doing it, you're almost thinking about pushing away. So there's no pause at the front. And so you just let that compression and it's like a spring, you push it together and it wants to move away. So that very front end part is where I think everybody gets in with the like the tightness because they, they think they have to make it move from the front, okay? You've got to be starting to think of like just smooth and roll out. And you've got to remember that your peak force on the rowing machine happens at the middle of the stroke. You don't have to have a massive amount of power as you take it off the catch. If you're leaving the power, you're like, leave it, then go through with it. Almost into a, to a point where it's almost thinking of a second half power um, input of your stroke rather than the very initial part when you're picking it up at the catch because everybody comes in and they think they've got to make it go, but 
the flywheel's already moving, right? The gear has got to take a little bit of time to catch up with the flywheel and then send it off. So you've got to think about more of a second half movement of the of your stroke rather than the initial what part. And that's why at the at the front you think you've got to take the stroke. You don't have to take it. You've got to just hang and then sit back through the part of the stroke. That's really where it comes from. And okay, on a boat, yeah, because if you the thing with the boat is if you if you put the blades in and you don't get it on, you're going to miss the speed of the boat. But the flywheel is consistent. It's not slowing down. It's it's going to always stay at that point. And so it's mm-hmm. about you just getting through it and then sending it off. It's the coming into the catch and that first sort of almost half of the drive. You don't have to be thinking about it being powerful because it's going to start making it powerful as you go through the stroke. And that's where like you're just trying to hang off the arms, not not even thinking about having any sort of tension, just rolling in and then rolling away and then using the body to do it. And And I think to start doing it, you've just got to roll into it and build your speed over five, six minutes and just forget about the power application at the front, hang and swing, hang and then swing, you know, yeah. so it's a very, very much a second half because it takes time for the gear to get back in and the flywheel to then speed off. Whereas everybody mm-hmm. thinks they're picking up the speed right from the front. No way. Look at the force curve. When yeah. is it starting to go through? You've got to have a connection and, and other things. I get that. But it's not until you're using this mass, which is all your body, which is what it's actually making the stroke go on the machine and in the, even on the water. And that's really what we've got. To, that's what we're trying to do. Um, you know, when, and it's and it's easy to say, hard to hard to actually do. Once the speed of the flywheel starts getting up and it's already there, then it's just tapping it along, getting that speed and carrying the body through. And that's where your heart rate's going to rise. You're going to be in a good working rate. Um, everything like that. Yeah, talking about the second half of the stroke there through the drive, it actually pairs really interestingly with something I um, heard from Lindsay Dare Shoop earlier this year. I had the opportunity to be coached by her, and she was talking about um, really being easy on the arms at the catch, right? But also easy on the arms into the finish. She was like, you're not yanking into the finish. And she made it look so effortless. Once she got her connection on the erg, you move through the middle of the stroke, like you were saying. And then she said something that really, I think, surprised most of us at this rowing camp, which was you don't need to pull in as far as you probably are used to easy with those arms into the finish. So I like this second half of the stroke focus. Thanks for talking with me about that. I'll yeah. let you know how it goes the one, on the earth. Yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. one, the one thing that we used to do on the water, which was, and go have a look at a lot of the loose turn footage from Hamish and I probably, I think, I'm not sure if it's either 13, 14 or 15. There's a fantastic piece. We've just gone through the thousand and like Hamish is finishing about like this far in front of his body. And that was one of our philosophies. It's like, you don't need to be bringing that oar into the body. Like, what's, what's this last part doing? It's getting you caught around the finish. The erg's very similar when you start getting up and rating. And if you, all you've got to do is watch that force curve. Why are you jamming it into your chest? What are you achieving? Absolutely nothing. All you're doing is tightening up your muscles, okay? And when I'm doing my live streams on YouTube and all the stuff there, you'll hear me always say, finish in front of the body, brush the body. There's no needing to hit it. Okay. Mm. Now, yes, if you're doing a 500 meter, absolutely. You want to engage every single muscle that you possibly can. And of course, last 
maybe minute or so of a 2K, you, you're just throwing every piece of thing into it. You can't. But when you're sitting there trying to sit on a nice rhythm or doing a 5K or you're doing half an hour, there's no point because every every ounce of, of effort that you're putting in that's actually not affecting the rower in any like form, shape, whatever, um, you're just you're just using energy that could be used in terms of the power production. And that's and right. that's really the key of it because you, all you're trying to do is be more efficient. Um, and when you're doing it on the water, the whole reason is everybody tries to jam it into the body because they think they're going to make some more movement in the boat. Boat is finished doing its movement. The only thing you're doing is, is tiring yourself out, slowing it down, whereas you should be allowing that pocket of air behind it to actually let it pop out of the water and just really smoothly almost just feather the blade out. If you watched our stuff, we're not trying to get the blade out really fast. We're almost trying to just let it feather in the water. And once you start feathering it, that, that pocket of pressure just lets the blade like pop out. And then all you're doing is just having a tiny little bit of downward movement. And of course, you don't have to hit the body. You just like let it flow out. And then you use that inertia, that momentum to like let you go back out. And, and I think it's very, very underrated um, because everybody's like, bring it into the body. And I know you need a gather point because of, of, you know, timings and bits and pieces. But I still think it's that we do it as a as everybody too much, thinking it's got to be, we've got to finish here. We've got to gather at this point here together. And all you tend to start doing is actually slow the boat down. Yeah. Um, we have a couple of listener questions. There you go. Love it. Love all right, it. Yeah. So the podcast is now in its third season. So we put the word out to our listeners and asked for questions. So Rachel, what do you got? On Twitter from Spencer Cutter at Crew Cutter, he wants to know uh, one of the biggest challenges for masters rowers is really the lack of time to train, right? We have kids, we've got parents, we've got dogs, whatever it is. What workouts and exercises would you prioritize in a limited training schedule? The home exercise stuff is, is probably one. So we used to do it a lot when we were training sort of club level, and it's about a 25 minute cycle depending on how much you do we'd go through like running on the spot then you do you know like squat jumps um probably 10 15 of those and that was your the chorus and then you might do say 20 burpees okay yep then go back to the chorus and then you might do 20 sit-ups back to the chorus 20 press-ups back to the chorus lunges 20 back to the chorus um, and so you can make up a whole lot of different, even those squat, you know, like rotations, boom, like that, back to the chorus. And you are, boom. But of course, it's doing a lot of movements, especially with the squat jumps and a lot of the movements, which are rowing specific. Um, that and obviously jumping on the rowing machine. Um, and, and the thing with the rowing machine that I feel is slightly underrated was I don't think people do enough intervals. Like we jump on and we'll just do 5K, we'll just do 10K. Um, but, but of course, you can jump on and do like three eight-minute pieces with a 30-second break in between. And, and it, what it does is it allows you to be really focused for that eight minutes. And then you, you might just do, you know, four minutes at 20, 422, boom, have, have 30 seconds, quick breather, refocus. And then you might go four minutes, 22, four minutes, 24. Next one's four minutes, 24, four minutes, 26, or it could just be eight minutes of 24. And then you're like, wow, I've just done 30 minutes or whatever time on the machine and I've pumped it out and I've had time to focus. The, the lot of times as we start rowing, we get to fatigue. Yes, and we need that, but we start just using bad habits, right? And it's very, and, and I always say it in, in my coaching stuff, it's very, very easy to learn something new. I could get you to do something new really, really quickly, right? 
but what do you start falling back into? The old habit. Okay, so it's very, very hard to break those old habits. So the interval training side of things allows you to learn new things, try and hold them for that period of time, take a break, quick drink, wipe the sweat off, back into focusing on those habits again. Whereas if you're like half an hour, by the time you hit 20 minutes, guarantee you you're back to doing the same shit that you used to be doing. And you'll be like, ah, oh, damn it, I'm back to doing what I was doing rather than using like intervals, whether they're five minutes, six minutes, who cares? Um, I really, really think most people should be doing a lot more interval stuff for that reason of breaking up the time. Um, it's not harming your endurance at all, uh, but it is really, really focused on technique focus and you can just focus down saying, hold it for the next minute, hold it for the next minute, bang, get to the finish, break, let's go again. Mm-hmm. All right, next question from our listener, Tira. Yes, okay, so... Uh, this is from the Broken Or podcast, guys. If you had to choose between Dancing with the Stars or a round of golf, which golf, would you choose? Golf, golf. <laughs> Thank you. Golf, I'm going to come golf. down to New Zealand and play around with you. I love golf. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. If I ever get up to the US, I'm 100% going to find somewhere to play some golf. Oh, 100%. And, you know, I'm outside the Seattle area, so there's a lot uh, going on here. Um, and then I had one last question. What's your favorite coxswain command to give or receive? Mm, that's an interesting one. Um, the thing was, we we didn't, well, uh, I don't know. Shit, I don't know. Um, oh, easy or because then you're finished, obviously. Um, <laughs> but but um, I'm not sure. I To be fair, because we didn't use, like we obviously use Caleb when we, like broke the world record in the Cox pair. Um, and he was very, very good because he was just like trying to motivate to make sure that it was we were working together. Um, and I feel like any coxswain should be just trying to get everybody to work together. You know, watch the person in front. That's it. Let's all follow. We're here together. Um, I, I feel like a good coxswain can really just get a team working together by making sure everybody's working in, in unison. To a point where they can't just be picking on somebody because they're doing things really bad. Um, because at the same time, your boat's only ever going to go as good as your weakest link. So if somebody's struggling, you need to be like, hey, you know, let's keep in time. You know, so-and-so, you know, you're just a little bit slow on the catch. But let's make sure we're all not rushing so that we've all got time to get it in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I really feel like as a cox, you need to be making sure that those are the things. But I couldn't give you one specific, like, this is the thing. Normally when they're like, yeah, we won. That, that's, that's a great yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really yes, we won. It's like, yeah, it's sweet. Cool. <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much. I mean, this has been amazing. Um, this has been, to me, your legend. So um, it's really an honor to chat, get to chat with you and talk rowing. And, and uh, I was, we're just- we could talk for hours. We could talk for hours. <laughs> we could talk for hours. Really? And, uh, and, and we would love to, we'd love to get the chance to talk with you again. We know we just like, it's just cracked the surface really here. There's so much more we could talk with you about, but really when we uh, saw that you had recognized our podcast online on social media, we were pretty floored and pretty astonished and really are, are honored that you wanted to, to chat with us today. So yeah. thank you for taking some time out of your- No worries. No worries. We love uh, talking to the everyday rower, and we know at one point you were an everyday rower. Yeah, and- once once upon a time. Yeah, I, right. I guess that's the thing, right? It's like you you get into it, and then you just it depends on how deep down the rabbit hole you get obsessed with it, right? And 
we, you know, I got obsessed with it and then I was like, okay, I want to see how well I can go. Um, and, and then you just start to figure out, especially with rowing, rowing is a classic where like work in equals results out generally. Um, and I think that's what most people try to do. Um, and that's basically what we tried to do, but we just did it at a level that was slightly disturbing, I guess. <laughs> and for Tara and I, you know, we are pretty average masters rowers, but our obsession with rowing has really brought us to this place where rowing has become our professional lives as coaches and mm. small business owners. And now with this podcast and we're finding, you know, there are people who are very interested in in the stories of other rowers, coaches, and coxswains, but very few people like us, you included, who really want to talk about rowing all the time. And when we get the chance to talk with someone who just has the, the depth and breadth of knowledge and interest, we could ask you anything and you're going to talk to us about rowing. That's really exciting for us. Yeah. yeah. Well, we found a good, it's a, it's a good match. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I like just talking to different people, and I've and I've done a few podcasts. Um, just because I think it's a great community. Um, you know, there's so much in the world of people doing it, and um, at the same time, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of change happening around the world, and um, even with rowing, you know, there's you know we've we've changed a lot, and it's always the lightweight debate, and and you know, indoor rowing starting to get a lot bigger. You know, I'm I'm lucky enough at the moment. I'm on the um the indoor rowing commission. Um, and so we've been we've been developing things. You might be pissed off that we cut some of the ages at the World Champs. Never mind. Um, but you know, there's some bits and pieces like that where we're starting to become bigger. And as a sport, we need to be looking at all the different aspects of of rowing, right under the umbrella, the coastal, um, the flat water, the indoor. It's all rowing, right? And and it's a massive community. And we bring all of that together. And it doesn't matter which level or which which discipline you want to be part of. It's all part of like rowing as such. Um, and I think that's the cool part about the community is trying to bring everybody together so that globally we've got a bigger reach um, so that everybody's involved. So glad we got the chance to talk with you. And uh, really, we've been talking with you for an hour 45. So thank you for yeah, your I time. We appreciate <laughs> it's it. all right. No worries. No worries. <laughs> thank you so much. This has been awesome. It's been just such a, a pleasure. So thank you. No worries. Thanks, team. Really enjoyed it. To see photos of Eric and get links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. And that's a- hey, Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Right. We should tell them about Friday mornings when we get together for coffee chat. We talk about rowing, racing, technique, but we also deep dive into things like inclusion and leadership. Yeah, I really look forward to those Friday morning chats with you and yeah. our listeners. So we hope that you'll join us Friday mornings at 8 a.m. West, 11 East on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. Steady State Podcast is brought to you by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience, and we run successful rowing-related enterprises. Tara is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, which champions inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. And Rachel is the founder of RowSource, designing unique rowing gear for individuals, clubs, and events. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Seize the Oar and RowSource. 
Steady State Podcast is a production of Steady State Network. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Tara and Rachel. Rachel also manages our website and social media. Our theme music is by the Free Harmonic Orchestra. In two, way enough. That's one, two, way enough. <laughs>